Well, all year we're focusing, uh, we've been focusing on learning the way of Jesus. And today, uh, we're almost done with this theme. We have today and the next Sunday, we'll probably talk about the way of Jesus in the future too. But our, our annual theme for our preaching ministry shifts subtly to a new theme starting in July, which is finding life in Jesus' name. And this theme, which we've never done this before, but we're going to take almost the whole year and go through one book of the Bible, which is the gospel according to John. And uh, I can't wait for this series. I'm, I've been planning this and studying and preparing for months, and I cannot wait for you to, you know, join me in this world of the gospel according to John. Uh, there's so much goodness and there's so much wisdom and there's so much just compelling beauty in the person and work of Jesus. And so I can't wait for that to start. But today, we're not quite there yet. We have a couple more weeks in this, in this series. And so um, this, is, this series has been on the life of the Apostle Paul. And I do hope that this series has been helpful to you. Sometimes I think that, <laughs> you know, I've really benefited from this. I hope anybody else has too. If this has been helpful for you, um, I'm, that would be thrilling to me. Uh, but we've seen throughout this series just a fundamental truth, which is this. Everybody needs Jesus. Everybody. Part of what we're going to see today is why. But everybody needs Jesus. Even if you're the Apostle Paul, the enemies of Jesus need Jesus. However, if you hear the gospel and you put your faith in Jesus and you start to follow his way by the power of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't just make your life a little better. It changes everything. And we've seen this transformation in Paul's life going from this violent persecutor of Christians to the most effective Christian missionary in the history of the world. And, but we've also seen this, this transformation in the lives of many of the people and even some whole cities as a result of Paul's ministry. Now, I suspect if we went around the room today, we could have hear many testimonies of in our lives to the changes that Jesus brought to us as well. Uh, but despite all of this evidence in Paul's life, in his, the record of his ministry, in our lives, despite all this evidence of the power of God and the truth of the gospel, one of the most startling realizations for many Christians is that even when you trust in Jesus as Lord, even when you're baptized and are obedient to follow his way, life can still be very, very hard. Tragedy can still strike. Godly people still suffer. And I've experienced this. I've been wounded. I've had broken relationships. I've struggled. I've suffered. I've tasted the bitter wine of anxiety and depression and all manner of weakness despite trying for years to be faithful to God. But my life has been relatively easy compared to the Apostle Paul. Paul suffered an immense amount after becoming a Christian. 
as we'll see today. So my question is this, why did Paul keep going? From a biographical standpoint, why did Paul keep traveling, keep preaching, keep making disciples and so on, on and on? when he faced so often such terrible and even violent opposition. What drove him forward despite such hardship? Now the answer is that Paul was taught a lesson by Jesus himself that sustained him through it all. Not only did Jesus help Paul learn how to survive suffering, But Jesus gave him a source of power, even in the midst of great weakness. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 1. And as you turn there, I'd just like to do a quick recap, now that we're coming to the end of this series, of Paul's life. So if we look at a map here, we see some of, the, some of the key places that we've encountered along the way. Paul was born and raised in Tarsus and received the best Jewish education in Jerusalem. He became a Christian in Damascus, eventually helping to lead this influential early church in Antioch. From there, he was sent out on three different missionary journeys, which led him as far west as the city of Corinth in Greece, and along the way had helped plant dozens of churches. Dozens more started as a result of the churches that he planted. And Paul wrote letters back to many of these churches, some of which have been included in the canon of Scripture. So Paul would eventually spend the last few years of his life in prison in Rome before being put to death for his faith in the mid-60s AD under the emperor Nero. But here, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul isn't dead yet, okay? He's still alive, and he's writing back to his friends in the city of Corinth in response to a distressing report that they are being confused and led astray. So we're going to unpack this passage in three parts, and it starts out with the highest of highs before, secondly, plummeting to the lowest of lows and then landing, showing us Paul's power in weakness. So let's jump into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting with verse 1. He writes, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of, out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. So this is the highest of highs, okay? So we're kind of coming into the middle of a longer passage in this letter to the Corinthians, where Paul is having to defend his ministry to his friends there in Corinth. Now, he had stayed and ministered in Corinth for about a year and a half, but after he left, others had come into Corinth claiming to be super apostles. Now, we don't know much about 
who these people were or exactly what they were claiming, although we can get bits and pieces from how Paul responds to the Corinthians about them. But clearly they were saying some things which required a response from Paul. So here when he says that he must go on boasting, even though there's nothing to be gained by it, what he's saying is he's, he's actually doing something that Paul really doesn't like to do. That is, he's having to defend the validity of his ministry and really of himself as an apostle of Jesus. He's having to boast as perhaps these so-called super apostles had boasted of his own authority, of his own credibility because it was being questioned. But what Paul says in defense of his ministry is nuts. It's, ama it's amazing. You see, whether it was because of their culture or whether it was because of their religious background, their pagan religious background, or, or maybe it was some other reason, for whatever reason, the people of Corinth were especially interested in more dramatic spiritual experiences, charismatic experiences in their church. The letter of 1 Corinthians addressed some of the chaos and some of the foolishness that this was causing to them in Corinth. But then along comes this group of super apostles who seem to be more than willing to feed into that desire for the more extreme, perhaps uh, claiming that they had their own spiritual experiences or perhaps visions of God of their own. And so Paul's hand is forced and basically says, listen, okay, you want visions and revelations? Fine, I'll tell you about mine. So he reluctantly says that 14 years ago, he was caught up to the third heaven, to the paradise of God. And what does that mean? Well, in this day, in, in Jewish thought, it was understood that heaven was separated into different levels. The, the third heaven, the highest place, would be the throne room of God. This was God's space. It was a place of, it was a paradise of perfection and glory. And Paul says that he was caught all the way up into the highest heaven and saw things and heard things that no one is allowed to even speak of. Now, 14 years earlier would place this experience as happening during the decade when Paul was back in Tarsus after becoming a Christian. Now, if you remember earlier in our series, uh, that means that this divine revelation that Paul received happened during the time when Paul basically disappears from the record of the book of Acts. Now, I would guess that Luke probably wanted, would, want to in, would have wanted to include this in his record of what happened in the early church after the resurrection of Jesus. But I imagine Paul was resistant, was hesitant to do so. Now, the only reason he brings it up here is because he is being forced to defend, not his ego, but the gospel that he preached to his friends in Corinth. So, did this really happen? Was Paul really caught up to the highest heaven and had this vision or experience maybe physically of being in the presence of God? Well, experiences such as this are fairly rare in the Bible. But they do happen from time to time. Let me give you a couple examples. So two men were physically caught up to heaven 
in the Old Testament, including Enoch, who could not be found because God had taken him away, and Elijah, who at the end of his life went up to heaven in a whirlwind riding on a chariot of fire. Okay, if you're gonna go, that's the way to go. (laughs) Additionally, there were prophets who received dreams or visions from the Holy Spirit which revealed some aspect of the heavenly realm and often revealed a message that they were to deliver to God's people. I think of Isaiah who found himself in the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter six and had this vision of the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne. In the New Testament, Philip was physically transported by the power of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with an Ethiopian man and then translated back again. But this sort of experience, honestly, is rare. So none of us probably will have this type of experience on this side of eternity. If it does, please let me know. I would love to talk about that with you, but probably not. However, Paul uses uh, this experience reluctantly, hesitantly, to combat the claims that he wasn't a true apostle or he wasn't on the level of these super apostles. Now, he uses the third person to talk about this experience. He says, I know a man in Christ who, who saw, was caught up to the third heaven. And it's, it's clear, though, if you read through the context, he's talking about himself. If he was talking about someone else, his argument wouldn't make any sense. But he's talking about himself. And I think the reason he does this is because he's not interested in sharing this experience, this revelation, this this incredible mystical spiritual experience to make himself look cool or impressive. If these super apostles super apostles had wouldn't have shown up, I don't even think he would have mentioned it for fear that he would get the attention or he would get the glory or he would just take the focus away from Jesus in any way. Paul repeats that he doesn't even fully understand how this experience happened. When I first read it, I thought, was this like an error in someone copying this text, like they wrote line one and then they wrote it again accidentally? And I think the answer is no. I think he repeats this to reiterate the fact that it wasn't up to him. He doesn't even even know how this happened. Was this physically, like was I bodily caught up into heaven? Was this some sort of dream or vision? I don't know. He repeats this to emphasize the fact that he didn't have this spiritual experience as a result of his wisdom or his knowledge or his faith or his good works or his power. This experience was 100% God. But even so, Paul experienced the highest of highs. Can you imagine having a time of prayer like this? Like Moses or Abraham in the past, Paul saw God. He received a little foretaste of paradise. He heard inexpressible things. Now, 
what an incredible gift. And what an incredible assurance of faith. Surely a man with an experience like that could be considered to be especially blessed by God, right? Surely a man who had an experience like this has the favor of God on his life, right? Who wouldn't want that? But in the very next breath, we're reminded that this man who 14 years earlier experienced the highest of highs also went through the lowest of lows. Look back at verse five. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from being, becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Let's pause here. So from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, from the heights of the throne room of God, from paradise to a thorn in the flesh and a life marked in many ways by weakness. This is Paul's story. He experienced surpassingly great revelations, but in order, he says, to teach him humility so that he might not become prideful or conceited. Paul says he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of the adversary, which was a source of torment. Now, this is all very strong language, reflecting, representing very real pain. And Paul says that he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. Three times he pleaded with the Lord, Lord God, take this from me. Please. But the Lord didn't take it away. Now, we know that Paul suffered in many places and in many different ways. Uh, I'd like to just jump back a chapter in 2 Corinthians and look at a passage where Paul talks about a few of the things that he endured as an apostle of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 24, says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times, you could die from that. People died from that. And he had that experience five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. 
I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Here's the point. Paul suffered. There's no two ways around it. He, he lived an incredible, fruitful life, but an incredibly difficult life. So in all this, what do you think the thorn in the flesh was that he mentions here in chapter 12? So the Old Testament speaks of enemies being a thorn in the side of the people of Israel, and we've certainly seen that Paul has had plenty of enemies, but it isn't clear here if the thorn he's referring to is a person or people who are opposed to him or something else equally difficult to deal with, such as an illness or an affliction. We don't know if it was a physical wound or an emotional wound or what. Now, one could imagine Paul suffering from maybe a, a stubborn infection for, or a broken bone that didn't heal properly from being beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and so on. But the truth is we don't know. But it really doesn't change the point. In fact, I think that it broadens the point to include any condition that we might face that could be considered a thorn in the flesh a painful, unwanted hardship or time of suffering. If we have a thorn in the flesh, what do we do? How would we continue? What would drive us? What would motivate us to continue on in faithfulness and obedience to Christ? What was it that kept Paul going? What was the power that propelled him forward? First, from the highest of highs, uh, Confidentially, I could never have that experience and not tell people about it. Could you? <laughs> maybe, maybe I need to learn some of the same lessons. But through the lowest of lows, well, third and finally, we'll see Paul's power in weakness. Look back at verse nine. But he, this is Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So three times, the mighty apostle Paul pleaded with Jesus to remove this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, this source of weakness, this source of pain, this source of shame. And three times, Jesus said, not yet. But that wasn't all. I mean, that that could have been enough. If God says no or not yet to your prayers, it's the best thing for you and we should accept that. But Paul says that Jesus gave him a little something more. Jesus told him, and friends, if you understand this, this will change your life. Jesus told Paul that his grace is sufficient. His grace is enough 
His grace is all that we truly need. Why? For, because, Jesus says, my power, not my wisdom, not my love, my power is made perfect in weakness. The power of God, the the power of the king of heaven, seated on the throne, is made perfect. It's brought to completion. It, It reaches its intended goal when? In our weakness. Now to understand this power, which is made available to us from Jesus in our weakness, we must understand what grace is. No other religion, no other philosophy, either today or in human history, has ever come up with anything like the grace of God which is found in Jesus Christ. Grace is one of the aspects of Christianity that is totally unique. Every other way, whether it's the Buddhist way or the Muslim way or even the way of secular humanism, these ways basically say that it is what you do that saves you. It is how you act. It is what you sacrifice. It is what you do that saves you. But this is the opposite of the Christian gospel. The gospel says it is not what you do, but what Jesus has done that saves you. Christian salvation is not earned. It is received as a gift. And that is what grace is. It is a gift Grace is the free and unmerited favor, the blessing, the love of God that is given to us in Jesus. Spiritually dead people can't make themselves alive, so God had to send his one and only son into the world, not first to condemn the world, but to save the world and to give his life so that we might live and rise from the dead so that we too might rise in the face of death. Now, a graceless religion results in people who are either exhausted from continually trying and failing to be good enough to appease God or the gods, or it results in people who are self-righteous and judgmental. Without grace, you'll either be spiritually crushed or full of pride. Without grace, your identity is fundamentally unstable because it is based on your moral or religious performance, which is inconsistent at best. Instead, because of the person and the work of Jesus, we are given the forgiveness. We are given the blessing and the acceptance and the love of God as a gift received simply by believing and trusting. We didn't earn it, so we can't lose it. And this identity is rock solid. It is unshakable. But the truth is, and this was a truth that was startling to me, if we were truly strong, we wouldn't need the grace of God. We wouldn't need the cross of Christ. We wouldn't need a savior. 
If we could get our act together to the point where our lives would be pleasing to the Lord on their own, we wouldn't need Christianity whatsoever. But we are not strong. In so many ways, we are weak. So it is our weakness, our pain, our wounds, our struggle, our suffering that are the context for grace. But you know what? Grace is enough. Because in our weakness, grace becomes not an excuse to wallow in our sorrows and say, woe is me, and establish ourselves as a victim for the rest of our lives. Grace becomes a dynamic source of power. Paul says that it is, this is why, for Christ's sake, he delights in weaknesses. Now, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting there, okay? Paul delights in weaknesses. Bring it on. You have an insult? Let me hear it. You, you have something hard that I need to walk through? Bring it on. There's persecutions? Fine. There are difficulties? <laughs> Just add them to the list, okay? Not because these things are good or fun or Paul doesn't like live in reality. He does. These things are hard, terrible, painful. Paul went through far worse things than we will walk through through in our lives. But because of God's grace in those moments when his weakness was on full display, he realized there was a different power dynamic. In his weakness, he found strength. Not strength from within, not strength that he had to summons up himself, but strength that was given to him as a gift. Because only in his weakness did he fully rely on the grace of God. So why did Paul keep going in the face of hardship? What drove him on? What compelled him to do the things that he did? What kept him going when life was so hard? It was the power of grace. It was the truth that when Paul was weak in himself, then and only then was he fully reliant on the strength of Jesus. So today, whether you have been experiencing the highest of highs lately, or you are in the lowest of lows, or if you, like me, are somewhere in between, let's never forget this principle. Because this is what our faith rests on, is that when you're weak, grace is enough. In our need, Jesus provides. In our lack of ability, Christ is more than sufficient. This was the secret, truly, to Paul's life and ministry. And it will change your life if you let it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess I hate weakness. I hate to feel weak. I despise weakness in other people. 
But Lord Jesus, you have been leading me down a path to see that I am weak. That is reality. And that we, Lord, people, human beings, men and women, who are seeking to walk through this life, experience weakness all the time. We run out of strength. We run out of knowledge. We run out of wisdom. We run out of faith. We run out of all kinds of things that would be helpful to us in our times of need. And Lord, we, we, we are so weak. But in your, in your mercy and in your love and your faithfulness to us, and to our brother Paul, you have gone above and beyond to demonstrate to us that you are sufficient and that your work and that your love and your care for us is more than enough. In fact, it's the power source that we need. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, first of all, forgive us for the times when we lean on our own strength when we try to do this life on our own power and by our own silly authority. And would you lead us, Lord Jesus, along the right path for your name's sake, which is empowered. In fact, your power is brought to its intended goal in the very context, in the very place of our weakness. Thank you, Lord. We give you the glory. We give you the honor. We give you the praise. For we can do nothing else but say thank you for the magnitude and the beauty of the gift which you give. We pray.